Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm James. And this is the Decahedron RPG Podcast. Hi, James. Hi, Joe. How are you this week? Uh, nothing new really going on, just lots of working and hanging out. My wife convinced me to join her gym. Uh, it's called Orange Theory Fitness, and it's been pretty much kicking my butt. And I just got back from the gym now. So uh, if you hear me panting during this episode, that's why. We'll get you a dog bowl. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. This week, we are talking about uh, e- um, email. I think it was a voicemail. It was, it was definitely a voicemail that uh, Jason sent us long ago. And we said, hey, that is good enough to be an episode of its own. And I don't have the voicemail anymore because I went on a mad cleaning spree on our um, on our directory. But the question Jason had asked, and by the way, that's Jason of the Nerds RPG Variety Podcast. Great podcast. You should listen to it. Anyway, there were like two questions in there, and I added a third one, which we'll get to at the end. The question was, do you roll for treasure ahead of time? like before the play session or after the characters have killed the the monster or when they have found the treasure. And the second part of his question is, then do you tailor the treasure for the party or do you just say whatever rolled up, rolled up? Let's do the first part. And I imagine you've done some, you've run some games, but you're mainly a player. I've played some games, but I'm mainly a GM. So I figured we attack it from from our strength. So James, as a player, uh, I imagine you've seen it both ways. I imagine you've seen it when <laughs> they rolled up the treasure. In fact, when we were young, I think we did that a little bit uh, right there at the table. And I think the default, especially like with modules and stuff, is that, you know, this is the treasure that's there. So as a player, what which method do you prefer? Myself, I prefer a pre-written list. And the reason I'm going to say that, and I'm doing this as a DM as well, I want to make a list of something that's going to be useful to the characters. I don't know how many times in the past where the DM rolled out the treasure and the couple of magical items we got didn't fit any one of the characters. A few DMs, and I would say few, would change it to something that was workable for someone. Does that make sense? So, yes, and actually you've jumped into Jason's second question there. I'm going to say that I, too, prefer to roll for treasure ahead of time, especially because, let's talk about 3E. In 3E, they changed a lot of the way the treasure worked. Most all of the OSR games are built on the skeleton of 3E that then remove elements and adding elements to make them emulate other games, except for basic fantasy, which isn't trying to emulate anything other than the general feel. The way that Swords and Wizardry does treasure, my favorite OSR game is White Box, which is a sword and wizardry offshoot. The way that they do treasure, I really like. And that's pretty much you total up all the experience points involved, and that generates how much treasure there should be. But you do that for like the whole level or the whole adventure or the whole whatever. Uh, because there's some things, like if the players encounter a pack of wolves, the wolves aren't going to have treasure laying around. That's not what wolves do. 
asterisk. I'm going to talk about this in just a second. <laughs> That's not wolves do. But, you know, the players should still kind of get a reward for overcoming that challenge. So if the wolves are like over here in in this area and just like a few hundred yards away is a lair of a pack of goblins, the treasure for those wolves will be with those goblins. And if you're rolling at the time, you got to remember. And so that's not how I do things. When I'm establishing a venture, I come up with all the encounters and then I come up with all the treasures and then I place the treasures with the encounters, some without any encounters and stuff like that. Yeah. So like you, I definitely prefer it uh, in advance. You do have to make the treasure fit the creature that you just defeated. So with the example you gave, there is treasure there, but it's wolf pelts. So what are you going to do? Take them into the city and sell them? James, sometimes it's like we have the same brain, even though we disagree on so many things. And that's why I said asterisk right there. We're going to talk about that. So yeah, in the old modules, whenever there was a pack of wolves nearby, there was a body of an adventurer that they had killed and the adventurer had a pouch with, you know, I hate that. It seems so contrived. I do very much believe in natural treasure. So wolves have wolf pelts. A lot of other creatures will have organs or stuff or meat, but organs that a magician might want and stuff like that. A game that did this very, very well. Have you ever played Hackmaster? No, but I actually have one of the books and have read it. Do you have any of the Hacklopedia Beasts? No, I just had the... Um, the Player's Handbook? I think that was what it is, yes. Player's Handbook. Well, their monster manual is called the Hacklopedia Beasts, and I think it's like eight volumes. It is a monstrous thing, and it is beautiful and wonderful. But one of the neat things is for every entry they have what that monster's natural treasure is. I just think that's a great idea, and I like to incorporate that. If you can find a copy of those books, I definitely recommend picking them up. They are awesome and amazing. Anyway, you've already touched on the second point, and Jason's second point was then you tailor the treasure for the characters, and you are saying yes. And as a player, it makes sense that you want that treasure that you can use. I do not do that. Unless, you know, if I'm sticking a MacGuffin in there for the plot, yeah, that's going to be, but that's tailored for the plot so much, not so much for the, the players. I think it's very, well, yeah, see, Ben? Mm, um, let, me, let me jump in here for a second. Okay. There are certain monsters you need certain weapons for, uh, either a plus one, or it needs to be an edge weapon, or it needs to be a bludgeoning weapon to kill it. That is definitely making it for the adventure that you're playing. But I also find it useless to have items that come that you get for the treasure and them not be useful. That's a personal opinion. I've done many convention games, TC Realms in particular. The modules were preset what the treasure was. And at the end of the game, we would have to split the treasure up between everyone. And I would have to take something that was useless to me sell it, and then try to buy something that was useful. To me, that was tedious. Okay, so many things to unpack there. I don't like to tailor anything to the party. I don't like to say that, you know, though the party doesn't have a thief, so I shouldn't put in a locked door here. Well, that was the party's choice to not have a thief, and the party has to live with that decision. So I, I'm not going to tailor my adventure around the characters. And likewise, it doesn't make sense that when the characters are delving into the thousand-year-old forgotten city of Kazabubum, that 
when they encounter the the treasure of the lost gods of Kazabumbum, that it's exactly set up for two clerics, a fighter, and a magic user. That's just silly. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying sticking in an item that is specific to a class, that it's needed just for that one class, and you don't have one. I understand now, to your point of the party makeup, you're right. If they don't have a thief, sorry, you fighter, you're going to have to kick in the door and hope it doesn't have a trap. And likewise, so if you have thief treasure, why should you take that out? Because they don't have a thief. That was on them. But I have a big asterisk here. So I don't tailor the treasure to the party, but oh, here comes my shame, James. I'm going to admit it publicly. (laughs) Go for it. We're going to lose all our listeners. There's only (sighs) two of them. (laughs) Me and you. No, No, I've uh, and Jason and Sam. Oh. <laughs> no, I've, I've said it before. D&D is what I played when I was a kid. And after D&D, I moved on to a couple other games that didn't stick. And from there, I moved on to GURPS, and that stuck for a long time. And from there, I moved on to Fudge, and that stuck for a long time. And these days, I do some, like I said, some white box. But I do a lot of my own homebrew type stuff. I do a lot of Tunnels and Trolls type stuff. So the question really doesn't apply to me because... Treasure tailored towards the party is very much a D&D type question. And I never, well, maybe like in the first time I was reading the book, I liked it. But once I started to think about things, I never liked character classes. And I'm not going to talk too much about that because we have a whole episode coming up about that. But I don't like character classes. It just seems so artificial and all that to me. And a magic item that only a fighter can use. How does the magic item know what a fighter is? What is the definition of a fighter? It's a gamey bit, and I get it, and I I understand it's a role-playing game, and you need game parts for the role-playing game. I totally understand that, but everybody has that line. It's different for everybody, and for me, that type of thing, I don't like it. And so the question really doesn't apply for the most part for me, because I don't, for the most part, play the type of games where that type of treasure will come into play. However, asterisk, again, I'm now going to disagree with everything I just said. Not everything. If I have a party of beginning characters, I am not going to give them the long forgotten sword of Pazadak, right? It's you know, it's that one godlike magic artifact that is going to let them conquer the world. No, that's not going to happen. So in that case, you could say that I'm tailoring it to the party. In classic D&D game, if I'm rolling along and I roll up a plus five Vorpal sword, is that a thing? I know there's a Vorpal sword and I know there's a plus five. I don't think there's a plus five Vorpal sword. Anyway, I roll up a plus five Vorpal sword on my first level adventure. They're not getting that. Oh, come on. You're not going to give that paladin his plus five holy adventure? Not on the first adventure, no. Eventually, (laughs) but not on the first adventure. So having initially said no, then changing it to, well, it really doesn't matter because I don't do that. I am now saying yes. So no matter what answer you like, I have given it. And no matter what answer you don't like, I have also given it. So if you want to disagree with me, disagree. If you want to agree with me, agree with me. All right. And so I'm going to throw in one more topic here because it kind of relates. And it wasn't what Jason asked, but um, random encounters, wandering monsters, those type of things. I don't know many people who do this, but I do this. I, well, first of all, a lot of people don't like random encounters. I love them. 
wandering monsters in a dungeon. The historical reason for them is so that when two parties are running through the same dungeon, they're not having exactly the same experience, which I think is a good thing. Reason number two, though, is that it adds a time pressure to the characters. They know if they stand here for two turns trying to figure this out, or they decide to try to heal there like overnight in a room, there's a danger. Thirdly, it makes the dungeon more alive. You know, room two has eight orcs. They never leave that room. They never do anything else. They sit in that room and wait for someone to come in so they can be killed by them. When you have wandering monsters, it gives us the feeling that there's stuff happening there. All right. So that's the argument for wandering monsters. But what I do, which I don't think I've never heard anybody else do these days. I didn't, I didn't do it as a kid. I roll the wandering monsters in advance before we play. So if we're having a session tomorrow night, I will sit down tonight and I will roll up, right? There's a one in six chance every turn that there's going to be a wandering monster. And I will just roll up. Actually, I use a computer to do it, to be honest. I would roll up for every turn, but whether or not there's a a wandering monster. And then I know, because I have my sheet, that there's going to be a wandering monster on turn number four. There's going to be another one on turn number nine and one on turn number 10. Ha ha, sucks to be them. Whatever. And if the party splits up, then one get, you know, I just interlace them down because they each get their own one your monster chance. But that lets me know a uh, turn or two ahead because I'm looking at my list. And I know that there's a monster, one your monster coming along and I can make that fit in more dynamically, more naturally, more realistically. So it feels like it was a planned encounter. Hold on a minute before I get totally lost on your logic. I like the idea. The only thing that ever bothered me on wandering monsters is the chart and dnd has a lot of charts there's a chart for everything but if you're doing a wandering monsters in a dungeon that you design it needs to be something that fits the dungeon or is in the dungeon not just something oh it popped to the side of the tunnel and you're now seeing whatever the big worm was i 128 percent agree with you i had no disagreement at all Wandering monsters can be interesting, and I'm going to say in all the times I played with you, I never realized you did the pre-rolling for the monsters. It just seems to fit in as we went along. Exactly. That's my point. (laughs) All right. I think we've covered everything we want to cover. So we're just going to wrap this up with our get to know each other. Well, not each other. We know each other pretty well to get to know our audience, to get to know us question. And the question this week is... What is your breakfast drink of choice? Some people do coffee. Some people do tea. Some people have other things. My my morning drink of choice is chocolate milk. And my wife calls me a child for it. But nonetheless, that is my morning drink of choice. Although I will admit when I have coffee syrup, I will drink coffee milk. But again, that's a Rhode Island thing. And that's mainly for happy memories. Okay, James, your turn. What do you drink? (laughs) Okay. Um, I usually work from home. So it is a bottle of water and a banana every day. But when I do have to go into the office, I'm not a coffee or tea person. I actually do some type of fancy hot chocolate out of the machine. So chocolate milk? Uh, Yes, they don't have coffee milk there. I wish they did. I would choose it. (laughs) Oh, we are chocolate milk brothers. uh, You said a banana. So are you saying that you drink the banana? Are you like a smoothie? No, I eat the banana. To the listeners, why don't you send us in some questions that you have also? Oh, that James, you are brilliant. This is why you are still a co-host. This is why I haven't fired you yet. 
You don't pay me, so <laughs> when I start getting paid, I'll worry about getting fired. Uh, pay you? I'm supposed to charge you for the privilege of being on this show. <laughs> oh, I'm going to have to remember that and use it one day on you. Uh, all right, James. Again, thank you for joining me. You're welcome, Joe. And everyone, please come back. And thanks for listening, everybody. Until next week, have a great week. Great gaming of your play. We, we should get a game on. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, James. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to the Decahedron Podcast. Send email to feedback at decahedron.com. Remember to spell decahedron with a K. Voice feedback can be sent through the Anchor website or by calling 562-RPG-CAST. That's 562-774-2278. Links are in the show notes. Music is courtesy of Kaboom Cloud, logo by Design Cat. Thanks for listening.